Welcome to episode 142 of the Women of the Military podcast. This week is book three of the Women Veteran Author Series for the summer, and I am interviewing retired Vice Admiral Sandra Stowes. She recently released Breaking Ice and Breaking Glass, Leading in Uncharted Waters. She has wanted to write this book since she was in her 20s, but she knew she couldn't do it while serving. So when she retired, she started writing and her new book was released on June 1st. It's meant to help those in the middle of a career. It gives leadership lessons that help people to continue forward and not quit. We also talked about her time in the Coast Guard on icebreakers and different opportunities that she experienced in the Coast Guard. I really enjoyed learning about the history and the mission of the Coast Guard through Sandy's story, so I'm excited to share this interview with you, so let's get started. of the Women of the Military podcast. Here you will find the real stories of female service members. I'm Amanda Huffman. I am an Air Force veteran, military spouse, and mom. I created Women of the Military podcast in 2019 as a place to share the stories of female service members past and present with the goal of finding the heart of the story while uncovering the triumphs and challenges women face while serving in the military. If you want to be encouraged by the stories of military women and be inspired to change the world, keep tuned for this latest episode of Women of the Military. Women of the Military podcast would like to thank Sabio Coding Bootcamp for sponsoring this week's episode. Sabio Coding Bootcamp is a top-ranked coding bootcamp that is 100% dedicated to helping smart and highly motivated individuals become exceptional software engineers. Visit their website at www.sabio.la to learn how you may be able to use your GI Bill of Benefits to train at Sabio. Your tuition and monthly BAH stipend may be paid during your training period. They are also 100% committed in helping you find your first job in tech. So don't forget to head over to www.sabio.la to learn more. And now let's get started with this week's interview. Welcome to the show, Sandra. I'm so excited to have you here. I'm happy to be here. Thank you so much, Amanda, for having me. So I always like to start with, why did you decide to join the military? I think everybody's asked that question, right? So an easy one to answer. In my case, I'll put this in context. So I'll raise my hand and say, yep, I was born in 1960. But that's important because in 1972, Title IX was passed, which gave women equal opportunity in education. And in 1973, the Equal Rights Amendment was passed by Congress which uh, provided more benefits to women. And so I was uh, 12 and 13 at the time. So by the time I entered high school at the age of 16, I had the opportunity to play sports. And that was really important because I was a really um, shy, kind of unconfident young girl at the time. And I got to play lots of sports because I was an athletic kid. I was born and raised with three brothers and hang around the neighborhood with mostly the boys because I was outnumbered. So I was um, in track. I had swum on the swimming team in the summer, but in high school was on track and basketball and a little bit of gymnastics. And I say that uh, because when you ask what kind of inspired me to join the military, it all started with society providing access to women that hadn't been there before. And I'm old enough to have been in that position where the opportunities were just coming available to me that hadn't been available to my mother or to even women a few years older than me. So when I was a junior in high school, following on that Equal Rights Amendment in 1973, in 1975, the Congress, when they signed the National Defense Authorization Act that went into effect in 1976, they required that all the military service academies open their doors to women. And this is Annapolis, Naval Academy, West Point, the Army, Colorado Springs, the Air Force, and Merchant Marine Academy up in Kings Point and the Coast Guard Academy in New London. And what happened was the Baltimore Sun wrote a feature article, and I was born and raised in Ellicott City, Maryland, so Annapolis was an hour away or less, and I'd never thought about 
the Naval Academy because it wasn't even an option for girls. But I did know about sailing. I'd never had a chance to sail when I was a kid because even though we lived, um, you know, less than an hour from Annapolis, we didn't have the means. We were modest uh, means family to, to be able to have a sailboat or go on the water. But when um, the Baltimore Sun came out, my neighbor walked it over and said, hey, Sandy, um, I know you're a tomboy and this might interest you. And I read that article, feature article on the Naval Academy very carefully because it was exciting. And I liked the opportunity to do something that had never been offered before. So even though I was shy and quiet, I liked adventure. And this was a chance to to do something different and exciting and hard. (laughs) And I'd had a lot of hard things I'd done in my life, which we won't go into now, but I'd realized the value of hard work and perseverance, even at that age, which was about 16 when I was a junior in high school. And the opportunity came to apply to one of the service academies or more. So I applied to um, the Naval Academy and it had to have a congressional nomination. So I went and met with my senator. And meanwhile, my uh, guidance counselor in high school, who had been my swimming coach in the summer, said, hey, Sandy, you shouldn't limit yourself to one college. You should cast a wider net. And I'm like, but PJ, I really want to go to the Naval Academy. He says, well, look, I got this brochure in the mail. It's from the Coast Guard Academy up in New London, Connecticut. And we both poured over that brochure. (laughs) You know, the Coast Guard has smaller boats. Um, We have big boats too, but we also have smaller boats. So we decided between the two of us, the Coast Guard must be a small Navy. And of course, that's not true. (laughs) (laughs) So I applied to the Coast Guard Academy and I heard back right away. And to make a longer story short, the Coast Guard falls under Title 14 of the United States Code, and the other service academies fall under Title 10. So even though we're a military, we are military, maritime, and multi-mission, so we fall under Title 14, don't need to have congressional nominations. So I got accepted right away on direct admission. And I thought, you know, I like the idea of not having to feel like I'm in a political process going to get a senatorial nomination. And my mother said, hey, you should take that bird in the hand. And we submitted and then the money that you needed to submit for a deposit was a couple hundred dollars. And my mom says, send that money in and accept that appointment. (laughs) And I'm so glad I did. Looking back, so that's how I got into the Coast Guard. And I didn't know this at the time, although I had indications of it. But because we were under Title 14, when the Coast Guard was told, hey, you're all going to accept women to the academies, women are going to be in the Coast Guard, the Coast Guard said, okay, we're going to integrate women fully. And we didn't impose any combat exclusion laws like DOD did. So for instance, in 1979, when I was a third class cadet, which is a uh, um, sophomore, my summer cruise was on the Coast Guard cutter Dallas, a 378 foot ship. And I can't recall if it was one of the um, 378 foot ships, which is like a small frigate that was outfitted with Harpoon and Sea Whiz, but we did have those weapon systems on board those cutters uh, for a time. And we women could deploy on those ships. So there weren't the exclusions. Now, I'm not going to say there weren't limitations because birthing was a limitation. So the ships had been built for all male crews. So what they did was they opened up accommodations where they could to have women come on board, but we at least weren't excluded, even though some of the accommodations weren't quite ready. And from there on out, every time we built a new class of ships, we made sure that women could be accommodated. So from the very beginning, women could go and serve in the front lines in the operational Coast Guard. And my career was surface operations, which is the equivalent in the Navy of a surface warfare officer. And I started out um, on ships at sea and had a chance to serve as a line officer, which wasn't available to my classmates at the Naval Academy or any other academy at the time. So I'm very, very grateful that I joined a service that put uh, women on par with men. And that eliminated a lot of the resentment that you might have had at the other academies. And I heard about that resentment. Well, women, they can't go to sea, so they get the best shore jobs when they graduate from the Naval Academy. And I was so thankful that it was all based on merit and that the gender right from the start at our academy wasn't considered in our assignment processes. It didn't limit us 
doesn't mean there weren't obstacles with having women integrate. <laughs> of course, there's going to be <laughs> challenges and obstacles for the first women that come into a situation or the first minorities, whatever it is that's being the first. But I always saw opportunity in the obstacles. And uh, that's how I got into the uh, Coast Guard and started a military career, having had nobody in my family be in the service. It was all because a neighbor brought over an article and that the Congress had mandated that the academies open their doors. So it was a lot of chance and circumstance, but I was willing to take advantage of those opportunities and seize them when they came along. And that's a lesson that I really like to leave with people when I'm talking is sometimes um, opportunity comes disguised as adversity. In this particular case, it was pure opportunity for reaching out for this new adventure. Was it scary (laughs) to be reaching out to join a military service and be one of the first women? Yeah, but I seized that opportunity and it really worked out well for me. 40 years later, when I retired, I had succeeded in a career through hard work and perseverance and taking on those odds. Yeah, it's really interesting because I've interviewed women who were some of the first women on the ships in Navy. And that was in like the 2000s, like late 90s, early 2000s, like 99, 98, and like early 2000s. And they were the first women. And so it's interesting how quickly the Coast Guard embraced women and started to make that transition happen from the get-go instead of like the Navy kind of pushed back, pushed back until they had no choice. And so it really makes the dynamics of like what it was like to be in the Coast Guard and being the Navy as a woman very different because of the different opportunities and how you weren't limited in the way that women often were in the Navy. Absolutely. I feel very, very fortunate. And like I said, a lot of it was chance and circumstance. So I always keep that in mind too. I found that over the years, looking at success as a component, what are the components of success? One of them is chance and and circumstance. And if you admit that, you can keep your humility. And I think there's a fine line between uh, humility and uh, hubris. And uh, like there is a fine line between uh, courage and and the cowardice. But keeping um, grounded in where you came from and the fact that a lot of your success is due to other people supporting you or chance and circumstance that comes along. Um, And if you're willing to seize it, yeah, you can ride that, but you're still keeping grounded in the fact that a lot of what you do is the result of other people's work or, um, or an opportunity coming along that might not have been available to somebody else, or if they had had that opportunity, they would have succeeded too. So I think that was very important to my success was keeping grounded. Yeah, that's really true. Let's talk about what was it like to be one of the first women at the Coast Guard Academy? I'll start the answer by saying that every one of the 312 of us who walked through the gates that in 1978, when we all came in in my class, the third class of women that had women to come in, it was hard for everybody. I mean, men and women, there was nobody who had a free pass who walked through that gate without some kind of a challenge. Yeah. Did, did women have their own challenges? Yeah, sure. But so did the guys that came from different parts of the country who might've had a, a slower culture. They weren't a type A personality. They were slow and methodic and it was expected to be, you know, jump to right now. And the idea was um, put everybody under pressure. So yeah, women might've faced um, pressure, but the, the men did too. And, and we had some minority cadets there. We all had it hard and we all had our strengths and our weaknesses. And we found that out very quickly because we're all put into platoons. <laughs> we're dropped into these platoons like you are, whether you're enlisted or an officer, whatever service you're in, you don't get to arrive at boot camp anywhere in the military or an academy in the military and say, hey, I want to be in with people exactly like me. And I'm not sure people would really want to say that, but you're put in to really, truly diverse platoons. And in my mind, the biggest, most important component of diversity is your, your the way you think and your personality. I, I'm not so sure I'm that 
fond of looking at diversity as strictly in terms of skin color and race and, and gender, like we tend to when we say diversity, there's so much more to it. And we're selling diversity short if we don't look at it as the full richness of people's personalities, experiences, backgrounds, and the way they think. And uh, we were all dropped into these platoons and we, wow, we found out pretty soon we couldn't survive on our own. We had to survive as a team and we had to look at the strengths and the weaknesses of each person in that team. And people had to accommodate for each other's weaknesses. And those with strengths had to rise up and fill in for those who were weaker so that as a team, you succeeded. And I think that was such a valuable lesson because as a shyer person who was an introvert, I had succeeded by relying on myself. (laughs) I've been too shy to go and form a team. And in high school, you get to pick your groups, your cliques and everything that you're in. And the military is great because they bring people together and they um, put you into these diverse groups where you really can succeed to your full potential as both an individual and as a team. And so my academy experience was grounded in that, that we were all doing our best to succeed individually and the system ensured that we had to rely on each other as a team. And it was hard being a woman. I was one of two women in a platoon of 30. So of the 312 people that came in, 30 of us were women. So that's something like 10%. uh, But the entire academy only had three classes of women. So we were only 5% of the whole cadet corps. And there was one class, the seniors who didn't have any women. And they were very, very proud (laughs) for whatever reason to be the last class without women. And they made that known. And, And so The idea was a class without women is better and superior to a class with women and the three classes below all had women. So when the senior class, which has the most power, is telling everybody that they're better because they don't have women, that means that everybody in the lower classes has free gangway, that's a military term, has the ability and the right to say, hey, women aren't good because they, um, obviously the best classes are those without women. We have women, so we must not be as good. And the women are the fault, the cause for that. So I found that there were women, people who didn't like the women there. On the other hand, there were many more who tried to help us succeed. So even though it seemed overwhelming that there was a lot of men who were against having women there, that's because those people really make your life miserable, whether they're classmates or senior class leaders. Most of my classmates were very good and accommodating and tried to help us, but you still got left out (laughs) because no one knew how to treat women in those days. And nowadays, women and men, boys and girls are much more integrated in, in school. But back in those days, it was harder. It was 30 years ago, for Pete's sake, or 40 at this point. And I know I'm kind of going on and on with the story here, but yeah, there were some hard things about being a woman, but there was support there too. And I tried to focus on the positive <laughs> and, um, and I found a coping mechanism because I didn't think I was going to graduate in four years. I thought, I'm never going to make it through here. The academics were so hard. I didn't have any calculus in high school. I was overwhelmed. It was stressful all the time. People putting pressure on you. So I thought, okay, if I do graduate in four years, that's still a heck of a long time. I've got to find a way to get through this. And I started thinking about it as I'll get through this one push up at a time, one meal at a time, one day at a time, one week at a time. Because if I look at four years or five years, if I get reverted, I mean, I'll just quit because I can't mentally cope with four or five years of this, but one day at a time, one meal at a time, that got me through. And I followed that, <laughs> that analogy throughout my life. When I was ever having a hard time, I try to look up from the tunnel vision and say, wait a minute, I just have to wait this out and take it one day at a time. And it too will pass. And there's so much good out there. I'm not gonna let this one bad thing get me down. So I found that, um, yeah, the academy was hard for everybody, maybe a little harder for, for women, but you had to find coping mechanisms. And that actually made me stronger. And I would argue it's be- it's why I succeeded to the um, executive level in the Coast Guard is because I had that really tough time early on and learned how to cope with challenge and adversity and how to overcome it. And so when it hit me at sea in a storm in a real life situation, I had already had it in the training environment and knew how to overcome it. So I don't regret anything that was hard at the academy. Yeah, maybe that's part of why it's so hard because you have to find that coping mechanism to get you through because that's a really good lesson to learn for your life and for a career in the military. 
I was thinking about my deployment and I had like a countdown clock and like it was every like some days it was like just get to lunch get to dinner (laughs) and then get to the next day because when I got there on day one I couldn't look at the end of coming home because I was like it's too far away and so yes you were in Afghanistan with a lot of uncertainty with the PRTs there was a lot of uncertainty that you had to manage that you couldn't get together in your brain so every day you woke up and you had the uncertainty. And I found that the uncertainty caused the stress throughout my career more than anything else. For sure. Yeah. So let's talk about your first assignment. Where did you go and what were you doing? Oh, thanks for asking because that's fond memories now. So when I graduated from the Coast Guard Academy in uh, 1982, it's a four-year college, came out with a Bachelor of Science degree. And then my first assignment was a float. All of us were sent afloat in those days. And I was assigned to the Coast Guard Cutter Glacier. And it was a polar icebreaker stationed in Long Beach, California. And within a month of arriving, we sailed south to Antarctica. And I had asked for the ship because I had a dream of going to the South Pacific. And I had, uh, as a cadet, I had been an actor in the the cadet musical South Pacific. (laughs) And that's an old musical. Some people might've heard of it, but I was, uh, I was not a good actress. I was a a nurse (laughs) and uh, I just had to sing Bally High and a couple songs, but I thought, I want to go to Bally. I want to go to Tahiti and see. It sounds like such a magical place. And I'll be darned if I didn't get assigned to the glacier, sail south to Antarctica. We stopped in Western Samoa. And on the way back, we stopped in Papayete, Tahiti. And it was the best place I'd ever been stopped for a port call ever that I ever visited. What an opportunity for a young girl who had joined the Coast Guard to see the world, to serve her country. And I got to do just that on the polar icebreakers. And then Antarctica, it's the South Pole where you got the penguins and it's a land continent. So there's um, Mount Erebus, it's 12,000 feet. It's an active volcano. And in addition to the icebergs, the penguins, the seals, you're down there in like a fantasy land. I mean, truly the last frontier. So I was in my glory as a young girl who loved the outdoors and wildlife and adventure. So I, I um, cross-decked. I changed um, ships from that ship to the Polar Star, which is another polar icebreaker. Long story short, the glacier was an old ship. And after that trip to Antarctica, it went into a, um, a maintenance availability. So they transferred me to a newer icebreaker up in Seattle. And I got to do it all over again, go to Antarctica. And this time we went to the Arctic too. So my first three years in the Coast Guard were spent on icebreakers. And I learned so much. And as my career went on, I have this book behind me, Breaking Ice and Breaking Glass. But I'm so thankful for that first tour of duty on the polar icebreakers that got got me a chance to see the world, to see an amazing Coast Guard mission. And uh, seeing those different countries that I stopped in was an education in and of itself. So we stopped in Lima, Peru. I went to Machu Picchu and I got to visit with Inca people and see how they lived. I mean, I just learned about the world and other cultures, which you wouldn't think you would get, but you saw that in Afghanistan. So I'd never known that signing up for the military, I'd be able to serve my country, get adventure and learn about other cultures in the world, which I think really increased my ability to work with different kinds of people. And I never really even gave diversity much thought because it was an internal part of me from what I had seen. So the idea of people being different, traveling to different lands and different cultures, I expected that and saw the value in in all those opportunities to find out what people were thinking and learn different perspectives and cultures. Yeah. And I think when a lot of people think of the Coast Guard, they think of like the American coastline and they don't realize the opportunities to travel to different places like to Antarctica and the the North Pole. And so that's just really cool to hear about like the different opportunities within the Coast Guard. I think that's I'm my favorite part of the podcast is I get to hear stories and I'm like, you can do that in the military. like, And then to find out what, how the different branches are different and the different opportunities. Was there anything from your time in that first three years that like a story that you want to share or a memory or something that really stands out from that time? Well, there's a lot of stories, but I'll use one that's a little bit 
educational and instructive. And it was a long time ago, but it is my story. And I started out a long time ago. Things have changed a lot since then. But I, like I said, came into the Coast Guard as a more shy, introverted, maybe less confident individual. And certainly the Academy helped me build that confidence. It started back in high school when when I talked about Title IX, giving women the opportunity to engage in sports uh, to build confidence. But when I went to my first ship, the Glacier, I had to qualify as a deck watch officer. That means you're standing on the bridge of the ship, you're learning how to drive and navigate, give commands to the helmsmen, the lookout. So you're running the, the bridge and you're driving the ship, put it in layman's terms, and you have to get qualified. And it takes usually a couple months to qualify as an underway officer of the deck. It means the captain trusts you to be in charge of the ship's movements while he or she, it was he's in those days, down below decks, um, sleeping at night or whatever. So I was standing watch with with um, qualified people who were breaking me in, helping me learn, and I was getting very experienced. And yet my boss wouldn't qualify me. And the people who were breaking me in were recommending me for qualification. She's ready. Let her uh, get her letter from the captain. But I talked to my boss and I, and I said, how come I can't qualify? And he says, well, he says... I'm not going to qualify you until you stand up on the bridge of that ship barking orders like you have a six gun in each hand, like John Wayne barking orders. And John Wayne was a movie star, a Western guy. He was a macho guy back in the day. And I wasn't ever going to be John Wayne. It was just not going to happen. But the, that's what my boss said. I have to be more in command on the bridge. And I would be the one who'd be up there just asking people. I'd be telling the houseman, hey, write full rudder. And I'd be saying to the bosun mate, can you make a round? It's the time. But I didn't need to bark it. I just didn't think I needed to demonstrate that I was in charge that way. I thought, looking back on it, um, because I didn't really think this sophisticated at the time, but I wanted to build trust and earn respect by my personal and professional power, not my position power. So that comes a little lesson I have called the three Ps of power. And if you want to succeed, especially 30 or 40 years later, where our society has moved towards earning respect and building trust um, through personal and professional power, not through position power, then that's what I was doing back in those days. My boss wanted me to be leaning on position power. And finally, he qualified me. I think um, I tried to be John Wayne. I failed. (laughs) He realized that I was getting the job done and being recommended by qualified people. And he qualified me. But it was an interesting story because I was unconfident and I had to go through the process of trying to be John Wayne before I could be comfortable being Ensign Sandy Stowe's. Yeah. So you kind of had to realize that even though he was pushing you to do something outside your comfort zone, that even, and and he was saying like, you can't be qualified unless you're like this, but that wasn't you. I got a lot of pushback of like, you need to be more in control. You need to be more. And I'm, I'm more like you. I'm quiet and reserved. And I, I can't do that. (laughs) I can't do it. Different leadership styles, and we don't have to all be in the hammer mode. We can be a different kind of leader. And doesn't mean that the different leadership styles, it doesn't mean they're better or worse because there probably is a time and a place for almost every leadership style. And I think that good leaders will know when to change their leadership style. The best leaders will understand their people well enough to know that this person needs a certain kind of leadership. This person needs a different kind. And if you have the privilege, I would say, as a leader of being able to lead at the individual level, that's the best way to go. Sometimes that's not possible with a huge, big command, but being emotionally aware, emotional intelligence and being situationally aware of what each person needs, that certainly is a characteristic of the best leaders. And they don't force everyone to lead the way they lead. They recognize that diversity of personalities and and, um, how you think really is where um, the power is in getting the best outcome, both for individuals and the unit. Yeah, that's so true. So I don't want to go like too deep into every aspect of your career because I feel like we could talk about (laughs) stuff forever. But let's talk about a little bit of like the high points. Like what were some big turning points throughout your career that led to ending up to being an admiral and and that sort of thing? And if people want to hear the whole story, they can buy your book. Yay! Yeah, they can buy Breaking Ice and Breaking Glass, Leading in Uncharted Waters. It comes out June 1st. There were several inflection points in my career. 
And I'll talk about three of them briefly. The first one was when I was assigned after six straight years of sea duty coming out of the academy, I was assigned to shore for the first time. And I was assigned to Coast Guard headquarters, which for the DOD listeners is is the equivalent of the Pentagon. (laughs) And, you know, a junior officer getting assigned back to headquarters of the Pentagon, you wonder, what am I going to do, be lost in a sea of people? So I was a little bit apprehensive. And um, I was assigned to the Polar Icebreaker Acquisition Office, which meant I was going to be working on the acquisition project to build another polar ice breaker. So it actually was exciting and fit right in with my interests. So I got to headquarters. My detailer, assignment officer, told me I was going to headquarters. I had kind of pushed back and said, oh, (laughs) I don't think that's going to be good for my career, is it? (laughs) And uh, he said, yeah. He said, it's going to be fine for your career. So I kind of didn't know if I should trust him or not. I got back to headquarters. I got into the job and I'm like, oh my gosh, I love this job. Staff job. I'm with naval engineers. I'm helping come up with a new polar icebreaker, all the acquisition pieces that that go into that. And so one day I um, walked down to the lower level of the building where the assignment officers are all we're all sitting and I knocked on the door at the cubicle of my assignment officer. And I said, you know, sir, I just want to stop by and thank you for sending me to headquarters because I didn't think it was the right place for me. And I was worried about going to a staff job and it's awesome. I have a great project and a great team. And, you know, assignment officers never get thanked. They only hear complaints from people they've assigned to something. So he was probably shocked. So I went back to my office and didn't think anything of it. And the inflection point comes when like a day or two later, I get this call from my assignment officer. And he says to me, hey, Lieutenant Stowes, would you like to go and interview for the job as a military aide to the Secretary of Transportation? And that was our service secretary at the time. Coast Guard was still in Transportation Department. Now we're in Homeland Security after 9-11. And he says, it's the first time we will have had a military aide to the service secretary. And I'm like, but sir, I was just down there yesterday telling you that I love my job. I can't leave my team for a greener offer greener pastures. So I said, no, thanks. And the next day I got a call from the detailer saying, let me rephrase that question. When on your schedule will you have the ability to go up and interview with the secretary? (laughs) So I'm like, okay, I guess I'm going to go up and interview regardless of whether I want this job or not. So I go up there and I interview and I just didn't know what to think. I was kind of mad that And I was being forced to go interview for this job, but I got picked for it. And oh my gosh, what an amazing opportunity to serve as the military age of the service secretary. And I got to see government from the top of the um, Washington, D.C., the whole presidential structure (laughs) and could see all the different cabinet heads, got to meet people from the transportation industry, got to see the Coast Guard as a piece of that whole jigsaw puzzle, but one piece. And before that, it had been the whole thing to me because that was my only view was the Coast Guard. So seeing it from a top-down view was so eye-opening. It developed me so much. And uh, Mr. Skinner and and, uh, some of the team members there were such great mentors to me. And we're still what we call the Skinner team family to this day. It's a tight-knit group. What a wonderful opportunity. So that was the first inflection point. And from there, I went back to sea and I was commander of a small icebreaking tugboat on the Great Lakes. And I eventually ended up serving in a staff job back in headquarters. This is when I was a commander. And this new inflection point happened when I had finished up 12 years of sea duty. And that was a lot. (laughs) I mean, more than most people serve. But going up the ranks, the next logical job for me when I finished the staff job I was in was to command an even bigger ship, the next size up, the biggest ship the Coast Guard had, which was at the time a 378 foot cutter. And I really thought long and hard about it. And I had to um, apply for the job. And because I was so qualified for that job. If I didn't want to put my name in the hat for it, I had to explain why I was asking not to be um, considered for that command of that next size ship. But I thought, what is it about the Coast Guard that I really love the most and being at sea that I really love the most? And at first I thought it was, oh, the adventure was the sunsets and sunrises up on the bridge. And, And then I realized, no, it really is Being up on the bridge, looking down on the deck and seeing young people who had reported on board before that patrol 
at a boot camp, they've been unconfident, hadn't known which side of it, which end of the ship to salute when they got on board. And now here they are pulling on a line with confidence, taking orders and yelling out answers. And I'm like, wow, developing these young men and women coming in from all over America and turning them into confident young leaders of character who are serving their nation. Wow. That's really why, what I love about the Coast Guard, not just riding along on a ship and giving orders and commanding a ship. So I asked to command our boot camp in Cape May, New Jersey. And it was a huge decision for a sailor to turn her back on her community. And I'm sure some people thought of it, of it that way. And I put in my letter asking not to screen for command of a bigger ship, which really tore at my inner being. But when I got assigned to the Coast Guard's boot camp, our recruit training center in Cape May, I enjoyed um, the most um, sincere satisfaction in my job I'd ever experienced because I was truly giving back by, and I was old enough at the time, I was a captain by now, you want to give back. So you've done the pointy end of the spear job long enough, you've performed the missions, now you're giving back by developing the next generation. So what an inflection point that was to make that discovery. And that's why I wrote the book and doing these podcast is to give back leadership lessons learned over 40 years. So that was a huge inflection point. And then another inflection point was um, when I finished up at the Coast Guard Academy commanding that organization, which was where the officers all come in. And it just fell right in line with having commanded the boot camp. What a privilege. I was the first person, not the first woman, the first person in the Coast Guard ever to command both the enlisted accession source and the officer accession source for the Coast Guard. And I consider that my best first because the other ones are, in my mind, gender-based. This one was really occupation and job-based. But coming out of the academy, I went, um, I was asked by our commandant, would you like to continue on? And Okay. Superintendents never continue on. They retire um, after the four-year job. And so I was um, the second um, officer, and it was 30 years later. Um, it had been 30 years since a, um, a Coast Guard Academy superintendent had been continued on after the academy. And I was asked to come down and, and um, be promoted to a three-star rank, which is vice admiral. And I was a two-star at the academy. And what an inflection point that was to get to the privilege to lead the Coast Guard under Admiral Zukum's leadership to lead the mission support organization, which the academy and our boot camp were all part of. So what an inflection point and what three great highlights of my career, serving as Sam Skinner's military aide, serving as the commander of our boot camp, and then um, finishing up as superintendent of the academy and serving at the three-star level to lead the mission support organization, which takes care of all the people in the Coast Guard. Yeah. I love how you went and you stopped and you thought like, what do I want to do? And you figured out you wanted to give back to the people and you use that and you let that steer the course for your career instead of being like, well, the military wants me to do this. So this is what I'm going to do. Instead, you thought about what do I want to do? What's the best thing for me? And then you were able to take that and then give back and then thrive because you were in the right place for you. Exactly. That's really cool. That's, that's such a cool story. And that's just, I'm like, I'm in the process of figuring out what I want. And so to hear you talk about like thinking about that while you're in the military, I think so many times when we're in the military, we just think about like, well, what is my commander telling me? What is my, like the chart that they tell you, like, this is how your career should go. And we don't think about what we want. So I think that's really powerful for those who are either entering the service or in the service, or even when you're transitioning out, it's really hard because sometimes the military pushes that down where you don't think about what you want. They do. And I would encourage people to be open and actually looking for ways to not just discover your passion and purpose when you're younger, but to rediscover your passion and purpose as you go on. So why in the heck would your passion and purpose stay the same for 40 years? So in my case, 40 years in the Coast Guard, who could expect your passion and purpose to stay the same for 40 years? Now, yes, my core values and the Coast Guard's core values were my moral compass, my North Star the whole 40 years, but my passion and purpose changed. And I seized the opportunities, which might take me in a different direction. And like you said, uh, being true to yourself while selflessly serving is another one of those continuums of how do you um, balance that? And so when you're in the, um, the military, your, your life is a 
bunch of balances and you've got to look at it that way and you've got to um, be bold enough to be um, able to pursue that balance like uh, on the continuum of what your purpose is going to be and and uh, what's good for you, what's good for the service, what's good for your family and um, and think that, give that a lot of thought and realize that um, also realize that the 40-year journey in my case, because it's my story we're talking about today, the satisfaction came in the 40 years, not in the destination of making Admiral. <laughs> I mean, that was just a consequence of 40 years of amazing opportunities. And in, in the book, one of my favorite books, Don Quixote by Cervantes, is where the saying comes from that life is all about the journey, not the destination. And in his book, it's actually life is about the road, taking the road to the end, not the end at the end of the road. So I always looked at it like that. Um, I'd read Don Quixote, um, you know, maybe um, when I was 30. And really that never left me um, because it's easy to hear the saying, life is about the journey, not the destination. But if you read Cervantes, um, Don Quixote, you get the whole context of what he was going through. It's a heck of it's an 800 page book. And it really gives you a perspective on life that helps guide you in your decision making and realize that being patient in the moment in year two of a 40 year journey and not getting frustrated and quitting because you reach an obstacle. You've got 40 years of, of, a, of a career. And even if it's not all in the military, even if it's five years in the military and 35 years in some other sector or, or raising children, you've got this lifespan and you should be patient with the milestones along the way and not quit because you don't get something fast enough and savor the fact that every day you're going to have little successes and little failures and, and then celebrate the successes and the failures because you got to laugh off some of the smaller failures. And I don't mean huge, big failures where you screw up and you shouldn't have. I mean, the little failures that come when you're trying to reach for a goal and you fall short and then you get up and you reach again. And um, sometimes you do fail and disappoint people. And then you um, admit it, you go fix what you messed up and you don't make the same mistake again. And you continue on with your journey. So I, I like to leave people with that story because I see so many young people nowadays quitting because they run up against the first resistance and they don't persevere through to achieve the full satisfaction of what they could if they had just persevered. Yeah. And I see a lot of people see the top of the mountain and they don't see the bottom and they think, oh, I can just jump to the, it's like, you can't jump to the top. It's like one step at a time. And then you might have to go back down. Like when you're trying to climb a mountain, sometimes you have to go back up and then down to you know, adjust to altitude. And like, that's a good translation for life because so many people just want to be at the top, but it's like, no, there's a journey. And then if you're, yeah, it's the same thing concept as the road, the mountain, and the road is filled with hills and potholes and gullies. And, and, um, and if you're in Afghanistan IEDs, I mean, there's a lot of dangers and hardships along the road, but yet you have to overcome them. If you just get to the end, what do you do there? I mean, really, what do you do if you're just at the end already and you're only at year 20 of your life? So celebrating the journey is so important for young people. And I will say that I didn't think of it that way when I was a young person. There was times when I was ready to quit. I had my resignation letter written twice. So I think interviewing, you interview young people, you interview older people on these podcasts that you have. And the older person's perspective is you can reflect back and try to impart some of the wisdom to younger people. Now they have to live their own lives because they're not going to believe you when you tell you this, but something might resonate with them as they're going through their journey. I heard Admiral Stowe's or General, somebody say this, and and um, hope you hope that those tidbits will come back as they're navigating their uncharted waters of uh, their journey. Yeah. So let's talk a little bit about how the book came to be and why you decided to write it. You mentioned it a little bit that you wanted to give back. So can we touch more on that aspect of why you wrote the book? Sure. When I was uh, working as a secretary of transportation's military aid, I was in my mid-20s. So I'd had six years at sea, I'd been to Arctic and the Antarctic. And now I was working for the secretary, traveling all around the, the world with him, meeting with titans of industry and transportation and up on the hill and everything. And I say that only to say, what an experience. And I was a friends with one of the advanced team members. Her name was Shane. And she was about my age, a little bit younger. But I told her one day, I said, Shane, I really 
really need to write a book about all that the Coast Guard's done for me. You know, all I've learned and um, experienced here. And uh, so even then in my mid twenties, I was thinking about it. And Shane said, yes, Sandy, you've got to call that book Breaking Ice and Breaking Glass because I had been on the icebreakers and I'd been, because I started in a third class of women, I was always the first wherever I went, uh, first or only woman on a ship or whatever the case might be. So I got the idea of the title back then. So in my mid twenties, I knew I was going to write a book and I knew I couldn't do it when I was in the Coast Guard. It was going to take too much time and reflection. So I treasured up all those experiences until I retired in 2018. And then I sat down to write that book. <laughs> it took me about two years. And the purpose of it was not to do a memoir because it's not a memoir. It's a book on leadership, not to make it all about Sandy, Avril Stowe's here's how she succeeded. The goal was to give back leadership lessons learned over 40 years in the Coast Guard through stories. So telling stories, because people want to hear stories like we've been doing on the podcast here. And I would then try to tie a leadership lesson or, or more to the story. So the book is about 300 pages and it's stories that deliver models and frameworks and leadership lessons and proven principles that should help people at every level of an organization, not just the military, public sector, private, nonprofit, different um, ages and stages. I kind of had, <laughs> I kind of had my younger self in mind when I was writing it. I've got a nephew who's a lieutenant in the Coast Guard and I loved serving with young people at boot camp in the academy. So I kind of think of like mid-grade people, enlisted officer, um, civilian, um, private sector. Those people in the middle are kind of left out of the conversation, right? The, the new people get all the training when they come in, right? And then the senior people make sure they get executive development. <laughs> so it's people in the middle that kind of don't have as much attention. And that's where you find people quitting and leaving the service or wherever in, in civilian sector, they drop out and go somewhere else at that middle level. So the book is really not specifically, but emotionally, in my mind, I'd like middle grade people to read something like my book and say, I'm going to stick it out because there's a great satisfaction in the journey that I'm on and I'm serving a noble cause and in the, in the armed forces or wherever you are. And, um, and I, you know, people change careers. That's great. I just don't want to see people quitting for the sake of quitting because they felt like without a good reason. So I always counsel people who came to me to say, ma'am, I'm putting my resignation letter in. I would ask them why. I would want to find out why, just because if it was something that I or my command was doing, we would change it to help make their life better, but also to help kind of counsel them. And if you're quitting for a good reason, because you really want to pursue something else, then that's fine because we all change our passion and purpose, like I said earlier. But if you're quitting because you feel like you've reached an obstacle and can't get past it, or you just are tired or sick of it, maybe there's ways we can talk about how you can persevere and push through if you really love what you're doing but just feel like you have to quit, let's find a way to push through. So I think that's really important is uh, making sure that middle people have the resources they need to make good decisions and pursue something where they have a passion and stick with it if it's what they really want to do instead of quitting because no one's looking out for them. Yeah, that sounds great. And as I told you before, it's on my reading list of all the books. Maybe when this episode goes live, I'll have it on my checked off because it's going live in July and it's coming out in June. So it gives me a month to get it done. But I really have appreciated your time. And I I think it's really cool that you're focusing on a group that, like you said, they often get forgotten. There's the people in the beginning who get the training and then the executive, but the middle is kind of where you can get lost and and make the choice to quit. So that's really awesome. But I want to end the interview with one last question, which is what advice would you give to young women who are considering joining the military? I think that young women should very seriously consider joining the military if they have an interest. You know, I don't want to say everybody should, but people should uh, look into not just the military, but what specific branch. Too often, we just equate them all the same. And oh my goodness, the Coast Guard is far different than the Marines, which is far different from the Navy, Air Force, or Army, or Merchant Marine for that matter. But if you want adventure, good structure and discipline, a chance to really be rewarded based on the merit of what you do, to really have a fair environment, because the military, in my mind, is 
our head and shoulders above the rest of society and how we treat our people, the fairness with, with which we uh, evaluate people and promote people and advance people and treat people. It's just a, a great place to be. You're serving something bigger than yourself. Many young people are looking for that sense of passion and purpose. And what better way than serving something bigger than yourself alongside people? And I remember my nephew saying this when he um, decided to become a cadet at the Coast Guard Academy. When I was superintendent, the poor young man, he said, Aunt Sandy, I like standing shoulder to shoulder with people who have the same passion and commitment that I do. He wanted to be with other people who were committed, not with people who were looking to see how little they can do to tag on with somebody else who's leading the project and doing as little as they can and still getting the same credit. So if you're looking for that kind of satisfaction and reward, doing things you couldn't do anywhere else, where else could you drive an icebreaker and go to the Arctic and the Antarctic? You couldn't do it even in the private sector. So I would definitely encourage young women to join the Coast Guard. And you know what else? It'll build your confidence and my advice would be when when they join, if they join, to believe in yourself. Even though that's hard, the Coast Guard, the military is going to give you chances to prove yourself to yourself. Normally, when we come in and do a good job, we've already proved ourselves to the our peers and our supervisors. Sometimes we women have a harder time believing in ourselves, even when other people believe in us already. So believe in yourself and you owe it to other people to believe in yourself. It's not just about you. If you don't believe in yourself, how can you stand up for somebody who's working for you or for a peer in the office who's being bullied and you need to stand up for that person instead of being a bystander? It is central to a person's success and well-being to believe in themselves and to learn how to do that. And you'd learn how to do that by putting yourself in a place like the military where you're tested and tried, and then you overcome and you realize, you know what, I can do this. And the belief builds and you finally come out where you believe in yourself, you believe in others, and you're a leader of character. Yeah. That's really powerful. And it's so true. The military does give you a chance to prove it to yourself because that's something that really resonates with me. I'm working on a book for women who are joining the military. And one of the whole themes of the book is you can do it and you just have to believe in yourself because that was something that I needed to hear over and over and over because I so often doubted myself. But then the military was like, go do this thing. And I was like, oh, okay. And they don't give you an option. And then I was like, oh, I could do it. I did that. I didn't know I could do that. And that's one of the great things about the military. Well said. So thank you so much. I really appreciate your time. And I'm excited for this episode when it'll go live. Thank you, Amanda. I was really pleased and honored to be on your show. You do so much good for women in the service. Thank you. This week's episode of Women of the Military Podcast. Do you love all things Women of the Military Podcast? Become a subscriber so you never miss an episode and consider leaving a review. It really helps people find the podcast and helps the podcast to grow. Are you still listening? You could be a part of the mission of telling the stories of military women by joining me on Patreon at patreon.com slash women of the military or you can order my book Women of the Military on Amazon. Every dollar helps to continue continue the work I am doing. Are you a business owner? Do you want to get your product or service in front of the Women of the Military podcast audience? Get in touch with the Women of the Military podcast team to learn more. All the links on how you can support Women of the Military podcast are located in the show notes. Thanks again for listening and for your support.